Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here today. We want to welcome all of our visitors and welcome those who are joining us online. It is uh, time for me to beg because um, we need three teachers, and that quarter begins next Sunday. So uh, if you can do that, please help us out. Even if you can just teach one month, if you can teach the month of June, that would buy us some time and we could find some more teachers. So if you have any questions about that, see me or Carissa after services or there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Also, we're getting close to VBS. Um, I know we've already had announcements about that. We'll have a work day today, need lots of volunteers. And we just got through with a series on joy, and there's nothing more joyous than, than BBS. And we do a great job here, and we do a wonderful um, job of welcoming children. Appreciate all the work that goes into that, but um, there is some sign-up sheets in the back, and then there will be some people working here today. So we're going to start a new series on grace. And there's lots to be said about grace, but I thought we would begin by looking at what's going on in the world. And so we live in a world that is growing more and more graceless. And so I'll give you a few examples of this. Consider cancel culture, a phrase that was unknown just several years ago. And so if you say the wrong thing or if you do the wrong thing, you can be canceled. And it does not matter if the offense occurred yesterday or if it occurred 30 years ago. It's all the same. It does not matter whether or not you show remorse and you apologize for what you said or did. There is no forgiveness. There is no grace. The, these are the rules of cancel culture. You just fall in line. Don't ever mess up. Because if you do, you're going to be canceled. And so cancel culture is not the only evidence of the lack of grace in our world. There's also the vitriol that we show towards our enemies. No longer can we simply agree to disagree or engage in civil debates concerning controversial issues. We want to crush our enemies. We don't even want to be near them. We're hearing more and more stories of people leaving professions and people moving to different states because they disagree with the values and positions of people around them. And so we want people on the other side completely out of our lives. The lack of grace in our nation is not limited to people in the world. Christians are also guilty. Just last month, a pastor in Spokane, Washington, made national headlines for a sermon he delivered in which he said the following about parents of transgender kids. They need to be convicted in trial and immediately shot in the back of the head. And then we can string them up above a bridge so the public can see the consequences of that kind of wickedness. When people in the world associate all Christians with statements like this, it's no wonder that they want nothing to do with us. Grace is lacking in our world. And we cannot just put all the blame on non-Christians. We have to look at our own actions and our own words to make sure that we are being a light in the darkness and we're following the example of Jesus. And so the world we live in needs grace. Without grace, bitterness flourishes. Without grace, hatred grows. Without grace, violence emerges. Without grace, hearts harden. 
And so there's no doubt that we need grace. The question we need to ask this morning is, where will grace come from? There's a famous story about C.S. Lewis, who was attending a conference on comparative religions. And he walked into a room where several people were debating what is unique about Christianity. And so after listening for a few minutes, Lewis interjected, what's unique about Christianity? Oh, that's easy. It's grace. And he was right. Grace is uniquely Christian. So if we live in a world that needs grace, we cannot expect it to come from other sources. We cannot expect others to dole out the grace that is needed. We must be the ones who are administering grace to this world that lacks it. And this is not an easy task because when we show grace, we're not likely to receive grace in return. And yet this is the very nature of grace. It is unmerited favor. It is a gift. It is treating people in a way that they do not deserve. And this is radical. And this is why many, including some Christians, just find ways around it. We would rather execute justice than to show grace. But we need to remember the example of Jesus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but nor that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And so if it was not Jesus' mission to condemn the world, do you think it should be our mission? God will execute justice when Jesus returns. But until then, we are to continue the mission of Jesus. And we are to show grace to a world that does not deserve it. And Jesus understood how radical this would be. He understood that people would object and that they would not want to do it. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, when he gives instructions on how to be graceful, he anticipates the objections. And he explains why it is that we are to be this way. And so you look at, for instance, Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, which say, You've heard that was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Show them grace. Why, Jesus? Why do we have to love our enemies? Why do we have to show grace to those who do not deserve it? He gives us the answer. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Be different. Don't be like the world. Don't be like everyone else. Be like God. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
Well, how do we know what God is like? Well, we look to Jesus, who is the full revelation of God. And notice how Jesus is described at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so it says here at the opening of the Gospel of John that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And these are both important. And for many years, Christians have been defenders of truth, and rightfully so. But have we devoted as much time to being dispensers of grace? You know, if we're honest, I'm not sure that we can say that we have. The world needs truth, but the only way people will receive it is if we present it with grace. And so we need to be a people that are known for displaying radical grace. The world may not agree with our truth, but we should live in such a way that they can never say that we are lacking in grace. And so over the next few weeks, I want us to meditate in particular on one verse. It's an important verse that's found um, towards the end of the book of Hebrews. And the Hebrews were a group of Christians who were facing difficult circumstances. And they were living in a hostile environment. The world was not very graceful to them. They were being persecuted. And it was in this context that we find these words. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The message translates it this way, make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. Now the writer of Hebrews had the church in mind here. We as Christians are to grow in grace and practice grace rather than becoming bitter and discontent. However, this message can also apply to how we live out our lives in the world. It aligns with Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. As we go out into the world, we need to make sure that no one around us misses out on the grace of God. And so we are to be dispensers of grace in a world that lacks it. You know, people have not changed much in 2,000 years. We're more like the people that Jesus was speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount than we realize. And as Jesus is telling these people to love their enemies, he anticipates their hesitation. He expects their objections. And so he tells them why they need to be this way. The grace that God wants us to share with the world is radical. It's something that does not come naturally. And it can be shocking to some. And so it's not unusual to want to know why. Why grace? Why does God want us to live in such a way? We've already seen that one of the reasons is so that we can be like God, so we can be like Jesus. 
But why else? What are the benefits of living a graceful life? Well, I want to go over a few reasons why we need to embrace grace and share it with as many people as we can. The first one is this. Grace keeps us from being judgmental. And so if we think about our verse, Hebrews 12 and verse 15, there is a battle that is going on within each of us. Are we going to grow in grace or are we going to grow in bitterness? It can go either way. We have two paths and we have to choose one. If we choose grace, we're going to grow closer to God. If we choose bitterness, we're going to grow away from God. And so how does practicing grace keep us from being judgmental and growing bitter? Well, when we go out into the world, it's easy to begin to make judgments, and then these judgments lead to bitterness. If someone is not nice to us, we begin to think that they are undeserving of our kindness. And we convince ourselves that, that we have a right to be mean and rude to this person because they did it first. Kind of sounds like the, the reasoning of my second grader, you know. If we're helping someone, we can easily begin to judge whether or not this person is deserving of our help. We may look at them and we may say, well, you know what? They're, they're driving a nicer car than me. They have a nicer phone than I do. And therefore, they are undeserving of my help. But really, this is the way that the world thinks. I'm only going to give you what you deserve. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. After all, you had it coming. If you made poor choices and now you don't have enough to eat, then too bad. That's on you. You don't deserve my generosity. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. Grace says I'm going to treat you kindly no matter how you treat me. Grace says I'm going to help you no matter how many poor choices that you've made. And when we practice grace, we are freed from the bitterness that being judgmental causes. We acknowledge that people around us are undeserving of our kindness, they're undeserving of our generosity, and this is okay because we were undeserving of the grace that God showed us. And so it's not about giving people what they deserve. It's about being like God. We want to treat people the way that God has treated us so that they might come to know the love and grace of God that we know. Second, grace softens hearts and transforms lives, including our own. And so scripture speaks of the promise of a soft heart. It does this in passages like Ezekiel 36 and 26, which speaks of God giving us a heart of flesh, a soft heart. In other places, like Hebrews 3 and verse 8, we are warned against hardening our hearts. 
And so what God desires is for us to have a soft heart, not a hard heart. Well, what softens hearts? It's grace. We're not going to win people over by giving them what they deserve. And this is the point of John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus came and showed grace and mercy to sinners. He dined with prostitutes and tax collectors. He made time for a woman with a questionable reputation. He went through Samaria rather than going around it. He refused to stone a woman who was caught in the act of committing adultery. And these acts of grace and mercy transformed the lives of the people who experienced them. Jesus did not offer harsh words to sinners and people in the world. He showed them nothing but grace. The only time that Jesus offers stern words and rebukes is to religious people who should know better. A lost world does not need anger. It does not need quarreling and arguments and other works of the flesh. A lost world needs the fruit of the Spirit. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul commands, Let your speech always be gracious. In Romans 12, we're told to bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. And a few verses later, Paul continues and says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so how are we to respond to a lost and dying world, a world that's often evil and dark, with gracious speech, by blessing them rather than cursing them, and by doing good? We cannot go wrong when we choose grace, blessing, and goodness. The world needs these things, but so do we. You know, it's not easy to be gracious when others are vile or to respond with goodness when others are committed to evil. But this is what God wants from us. And one of the reasons for this is that it not only has the opportunity to transform those in the world, but it transforms our lives as well. When we choose grace and goodness, we are being like God, and we are being transformed into his image. And we are, we are letting go of doing things our way. We're letting go of revenge, and we're choosing the way of Christ. Third, grace makes the world a better place. If we truly want a better world for our kids and our grandkids, then we will choose grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he gives these famous instructions. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone slaps you on the cheek, what do they deserve? They certainly do not deserve a second chance at slapping the other cheek. But this is what Jesus commands. Now, this is not a gift. 
but it's certainly something unexpected. It's something undeserved. And this passage invites us to consider what it is that we are putting into the world. If someone throws a rock at us, and then we throw one back, how are they going to respond? Will they simply acknowledge, well, that response is fair, and let's just call it good? Not likely. What will probably happen is the person who threw the rock first will go searching for a bigger rock. Because we live in a world that never says enough. We live in a world where problems keep escalating and escalating and escalating until they're just out of control. And Jesus wants us to consider what kind of world that we want to live in. If we want a world that is founded on revenge and we choose to live that way, then guess what? We're going to get it. But if we want something different, if we want a world that's centered around grace, then we need to be gracious. We need to be whatever it is we want the world to be. This is the same principle found in Romans 12 and verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in an evil world or do you want to live in a good world? If you want to live in a world where goodness flourishes, then go and do good. Don't focus on what is fair. Focus on what the world can be if we choose to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, I understand that, that what I'm presenting this morning is radical. I understand that some are going to be unwilling to try it. But this does not negate that Jesus said it. It does not negate that it's what God desires. It does not negate that the road to transforming lives and making the world a better place is a difficult one. It's the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. One of the people who has lived this out in recent years is the world-renowned scientist Francis Collins. Uh, Philip Yancey tells the following story about him in his book, Vanishing Grace. Dr. Collins has a PhD and an MD, and he directed the Human Genome Project. And he's received numerous awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the National Medal of Science, and the Templeton Prize. However, this has not prevented Dr. Collins from receiving an unusual amount of criticism, especially from scientists who are unbelievers. One scientist accused Dr. Collins of suffering from dementia. Another called him a clown, all because he is a person of faith. Dr. Collins has had plenty of opponents throughout his career. He's engaged in cordial debates with some of the most well-known atheists of the 20th century. And what is amazing is how Dr. Collins treats these opponents. He meets with them for tea or for coffee. He listens and he gets to know them. 
He uh, befriended the militant atheist Christopher Hitchens, whom he also debated. And Hitchens wrote such books as God is Not Great. And he devoted his life to attacking Christianity. And when Dr. Collins learned that Hitchens had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer, he called to offer help. And he said to him, as the director of the National Institute for Health, I approve many government-funded research grants, and I know about some rather cutting-edge approaches based on cancer genomics. And so over the next few months, he spent hours with the Hitchens family going over the options for treatment. And Christopher Hitchens lived with his cancer for a year and a half. And he chronicled his journey in the pages of Vanity Fair magazine. And he told of receiving hateful messages from Christians, including one who rejoiced that he got cancer in one part of his body that he used for blasphemy. Then comes the real fun. He sent to hellfire forever to be tortured and set afire. Yet one of Hitchens' last columns paid tribute to Francis Collins, whom he described as one of the greatest Americans and our most selfless Christian physician. He wrote, the great humanitarian is also a devotee of the work of C.S. Lewis. And in his book, The Language of God has set out the case for making science compatible with faith. I know Francis, too, from various public and private debates over religion. He has been kind enough to visit me in his own time and to discuss all sorts of novel treatments, only recently even imaginable, that might apply to my case. Now, Christopher Hitchens had no deathbed conversion, and he passed from this life as a convinced atheist. But from one friend, at least, he received spiritual care, the quiet service of love. And Francis Collins fulfilled this command that we find in Hebrews. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Amen. And so what are you doing to see to it that no one misses the grace of God? The world is watching. People are paying attention. They have formed opinions about Christians from what they read about in the news and what they see on social media. Let's give them what they don't expect. Let's give them what they don't deserve. Let's see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for this opportunity to pause and to praise you and to worship you and to thank you for all that you've done in our lives and to rejoice in who you are. And Father, I pray that we would commit ourselves to being like you, 
to commit ourselves to being gracious and merciful in a world that is dark and evil, in a world that does not deserve it, in a world that is full of hatred, in a world that wants to cancel us, that we would never give up on being the people that you would have us to be. I pray that we would look at Jesus and we would look at who he is, full of grace and truth, and we would commit ourselves to being the same. Be with us, Father, as we go from this place and we go out into the world, and I pray that we all would be gracious and that no one around us would miss out on the grace of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.